1 John chapter 4, let's look at the author again a little bit before we get into the verses. While Jesus was on this earth during his earthly ministry, the Apostle John was the one who was the closest to him physically. You read about it in, in the book of John, and he's right next to Jesus. He's got the seat next to Jesus. He's leaning on Jesus' chest. And when Jesus said to him, abide in me, he knew what that meant. It meant be grafted to, be, to me, be connected to me. And he took that literally. He said, since Jesus is the source of life, I'm going to be as close to Jesus as I can. As a teenager, he said, that's what it means to abide. But now he writes to us in his 90s. He writes to the church, and he's learned that abiding in Christ is by the Spirit because he doesn't have Jesus right next to him anymore. He can't hug the Lord literally, but he's grown, and now he's even closer to Jesus than he, when he was in that upper room because Jesus said to us in John 14, did he not, that it's, it's better for you that I go away because then the Helper will come, the Holy Spirit, and he'll draw you near, and that's where John is, is writing from. John, at this point, had been through some very intense persecution. And as our world keeps changing and we see it moving more towards the reality of persecution for not just some, but for all Christians, I want you to think about where the writer was, the Apostle John. He saw every single apostle, aside from himself, martyred for the sake of Christ. You know, sometimes you connect with your old friends and you wonder what they're up to. John heard one by one as each one of them gave their lives in gruesome ways. And he knew what it meant to be connected to Jesus. And he knew that his brothers in Christ, those apostles, were abiding in Christ as they gave their life for the cause of the gospel, for their faith in the Lord. And John experienced much persecution. History apart from the Bible tells us that they dipped him in boiling oil, but, but he didn't die. Do you think he was abiding in Christ when he went through that trial? And then they took him and they left him on, a, on the Isle of Patmos. And you might be thinking of like a bigger island that's nice. It's just basically a rock out in the ocean. This left him out there. Was he abiding in Christ when he was there by the Spirit? He certainly was. That's when the Holy Spirit gave him the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Not revelations, but plural, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This man has, has learned through persecution by the Spirit more and more what it means to abide in Jesus. So he was saying, just like me and just like you, what we learned on Sunday, teach me to abide. Teach me what it means to abide in you because I've got a lot more in front of me. I've got a lot more life to live. And I need to be tight with you. I need to be a member of the graft. I need to be bound to you, Lord. I can't afford to have any space between me and you. I can't let in any disease or any sin or any, any distraction come between me and you. Think about this Holy Spirit-inspired writer before him, before us. John also knew what it meant to have this abiding cause commandment keeping in his life. What's the number one commandment that we have learned so far? Yes, we're to have faith, but we're to love, aren't we? And John was known as the apostle of love. He says over and over again in this book, and it's spirit-inspired, so it's not fake. He says over and over again, beloved, doesn't he? 
Now, was the apostle of love always lovable? Was he always loving? When Jesus found him and called him, was he a loving person? No, he was one of the sons of thunder, wasn't he? When people didn't like him and didn't want to accept Jesus' ministry and didn't want to receive them, he said, Lord, I want right now to kill all of them with fire. That's who he was as a teenager. Brings back some things for me. I'm not close to 90 yet, but as a teenager, that's who he was, right? And now, because he's been abiding in Christ by the power of the Spirit, he's endured persecution for the sake of the gospel. He's a loving man. He's gone from a son of thunder to, to one who loves, literally loves other people. He wasn't always the apostle of love. Early on, he was the apostle of, of anger, of vengeance. And now the Lord has conducted and is continuing to conduct this transformation because of his abiding in Christ. This abiding is not just for the super disciples. It's not just for the apostles. And it's not just for certain people in the church today. It's for every single Christian. Say, Lord, make me tight with you. Teach me because I can't keep your commandments on my own. I can't love, that's for sure, in my own strength. I can't endure persecution. I'm full of vengeance instead of kindness. So I need to abide in you. Teach me what it means. He'll carry you through this life and on into eternity. You will be a branch that bears fruit like you never thought you could bear. Your life will produce that which you didn't think was possible. But in the Lord, it is possible. There's nothing better than an abundant life in Christ. You might not be the cutest. You might not be the most popular. You might not be the richest. But you'll be the most complete. So from this position of, of urging the church to abide in Christ, to remind them what it means to abide in Christ, we come into 1 John 4. And he writes, Beloved, there he is again, writing to those he loves, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Number one, test because you're protective. Test the spirits because you love your brothers and your sisters. See, this section, and I've titled it Test the Spirits, it fits one of the themes in these first six verses. This topic of testing the spirits is sandwiched between love on both sides. In the previous chapter, you know, it said love, what, what's love? It's to lay down your life for others. What's love? It's to meet tangible needs. And then he starts off this very be beginning, this very first word of chapter four with beloved. So it's got love in front of it. Then you get into chapter seven, sorry, verse seven, and they're the famous verses of first John four, seven and eight that say, beloved, let us love one another. So right in between this admonition, this encouragement to abide in Christ and to love one another, we have this section about testing the spirits. Why are we to test the spirits? Because a person that is loving is also protective. Are you not protective over those that you love? Even if you're not that strong to protect, isn't it true that you're, you're protective? You don't want to see those that you love be taken advantage of physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. If you love somebody, you definitely are protective of them. There's got to be at least somebody in your life as you nod your head to me. I'm a protective person. There aren't a whole lot of people that say, oh, I'm not protective, right? 
Well, then how many people do you love if you're not that protective? Because when you love somebody, you're watching out for them. You protect them. So one of the reasons we're supposed to test the spirits is that we care about the body of Christ. We love each other. We don't want to see each other ripped off. We don't want to see our brothers and sisters sifted away. Take a little bit of that protectiveness that you may have as a good friend or as a grandparent or as a parent or as a spouse and understand that that's the way it ought to be for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be hurting for each other. We should be protective of one another. Now, if if you're a person who needs to be protected, don't be insulted. Just think, I'm so blessed that I have somebody that's asking me questions, right? That's, That's looking out for me. That's testing the spirits. I should be testing them myself. But as we are protective, we look and we see, you know, part of loving is to make sure that we're on the right path, to make sure that we're not deceived. This chapter, this section of the chapter will teach us about spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If you love somebody, you want them to be on that path of goodness and righteousness. And you don't want them to be distracted by the path of error or the spirit of error as it is put in this passage. So first point is test because you're protective. You're loving. God has worked that in your life. You care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So you're going to test the spirits. Also, number two, test because false prophets are prevalent. Look at what verse one says. It says that already at this time, the time of the writing of this, there were many false prophets. So behind every single prophet, behind every person who speaks supposedly the word of God, there's a spirit, right? Either the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. And behind the spirit of truth is the Lord, and behind the spirit of error is Satan himself. And look at what it says here. There are many of them. So love because you're protective. If you care about somebody, you're going to protect them. But aren't you going to protect them even more if you know that there's a lot of danger out there? We have mountain lions on the hill where we live, just like a lot of you guys do. Somebody says to me, like, are you sure you want, you know, your little kid walking all the way, you know, down the driveway to go feed the animals by himself? And I say, well, I don't love him that much, so he can go ahead and go down the driveway. (laughs) No, I love him, so I want to be protective. But what if I find out there are many lines? There's not just, it's not a rare chance that you're going to come across one. That's what the Bible is saying. It's dangerous. Protect because you're loving, but also know that false teaching is prevalent. There are many people who twist the word of God. It's not rare. That's what the word of God is saying. It comes in all shapes and sizes. It's in the church because there are wolves in sheep's clothing. It's outside the church. People that are worldly calling for saints to come and follow after them, calling to the world. There's all kinds of false teachers, false hope, false faith. Many people saying, get your life from me. Now, Jesus is the true vine. He says, come and abide in me. But have you ever found your life in being more wealthy? Have you ever found your life in being better than somebody else? Have you ever found your life through being beautiful or or handsome? Have you ever found your life through lust? I haven't. It's just a bunch of empty promises. Many, many false prophets. Have you ever found your life in legalism? Have you ever found your life in the traditions of men apart from God? I haven't. There's only one true vine, and that is Christ. 
So test because there are many false prophets. They're prevalent. Moving quickly. Test because false teaching is appealing. Now this, it even gets worse. So not only do you want to protect because you're loving and because there's a lot of false teaching out there, but this is the thing about false teaching. It's prevalent and it's attractive to many, many people. So am I going to send Ransom, my 12-year-old, down the hill if he's attracted the lions? There's a lot of them and I'm protective of him. So this is the worst kind of attraction because we're often attracted to things that are really dangerous for us. Let me read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come, and we're in those days, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. So do you see that false teaching is often built according to our desires that are corrupt. It appeals to something in our flesh. So it's bad for us, it's prevalent, and it's appealing to our flesh. So we should say, that we, this is not good. Beware of those that tell you what you want to hear all the time. That's really, really dangerous, isn't it? It doesn't have to be from behind a pulpit. Oftentimes it does come from a pulpit. But a real friend tells you the truth. A real friend. And I hope that you have some good friends. I hope you have some real friends. But I ask you this, has your good friend spoken difficult words to you? Has your good friend pointed out to you things that you would rather not hear? If they haven't, then are they really that good of a friend? I remind you of the proverb, 27.6. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That means you can trust them. You can trust the wound of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Isn't that what's going on in our world and in the corrupt church? Tell us what we want to hear. Tell us that we're just fine. Tell us that we don't need to change. Tell us, but a real protective friend, one who's testing the spirits, speaks the truth. I have a friend, and I'm glad... Yeah, he's not here tonight. I'm not glad he's not here tonight, but he because I would embarrass him. I won't tell you who he is. So he's got a, he literally always has a big smile. And one time he said, you know what you are? You're my piercing pastor. And at first I was like, wow, that's, uh, but that's actually good, isn't it? Pastor means you, I know you care about me, but piercing means you're willing to tell me the truth and I'm, I'm pierced to the heart, right? So there's an element there of conviction but then there's also an element there of care. And we test the spirits because we know that false teaching is appealing. Beware of those who flatter to gain a following. This is very often within the context of the church. Words are spoken and they seem to be kind at first, but really they're spoken because that person wants them to follow after them. Let me need to tell you a bunch of good stuff about yourself when maybe we don't need to hear good stuff about ourselves. We need somebody to speak the truth to us in love. But people want to be esteemed. They say, oh, that's, that's legalism when people confront you about your sin. Not always. Sometimes that's because we realize that false teaching is appealing. If you love your brother or your sister, there will be times when you'll speak the truth to them and it'll hurt. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ 
has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Next, test regarding the incarnation of Christ. This is a theme that's been in this book before. John is not saying that the only way to determine a false teacher is to look at the incarnation of Christ. Do they believe in it or not believe in it? But he's saying on this issue of did Jesus come in the spirit only or did he come in the flesh? You can identify a false teacher because a false teacher in this case, we'll say Jesus didn't come in bodily form. Wasn't that one of the teachings of the Gnostics, right? So you went to verse 3 on your quiz, and that's what it's about. Like, there were certain Gnostics that were saying Jesus didn't really come in person. He didn't really come in the flesh. He didn't take on the form of a man the way the Word of God says he did. So it appears that this instruction was given by John because the church was dealing with Gnosticism. Skip ahead in your Bible to 1 John 5, 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He's hammering home that point. He was born to Mary. He was born as a child. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And this is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So as you test, look at the incarnation of Christ. We sing a hymn, and it was written by Charles Wesley back in 1739, so it's a pretty old song. And we sing it around Christmas time. It's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We need to have more theologians write the lyrics of our songs today because listen to the words. I hope they don't just roll off your tongue. Listen to the, the truth, the, the deep abiding doctrine that is written in the song. And, and he didn't write the melody. There was a different melody that originally went to Hark the Herald Angel, Angel Sing, and it wasn't a very good melody. And then years later, I listened to it. I can tell you it wasn't very good. They put it to the tune of one of Mendelssohn's songs, and Felix Mendelssohn, and now it's what we sing today. But listen to the lyrics. Christ by highest heaven adorned, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. There it is, the incarnation of Christ. The word made flesh. Jesus, the Lord himself, God Almighty, come taking on flesh and living a perfect life in your place. Then giving his life for you so that you could have forgiveness. That's the best news to me, that I can be forgiven because Jesus came, took on flesh, died, and rose again. Now look at the middle of verse 3. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So number five, test because the lie is of the Antichrist. All lies are sin, isn't that true? But look at this lie. The Bible makes it clear that it's very severe, that it's not a lie we can put up with. If a lie is from the Antichrist, isn't it pretty bad? It's pretty severe. That gets my attention. It's from the devil himself. The Antichrist will be an individual that comes into this world and he pre will present himself instead of Jesus, right? Not just against Jesus, but instead of Jesus. He will proclaim himself to be the Christ. But the spirit of the Antichrist has been in the world for thousands of years 
even since Satan fell from glory, right? And so now we have here this truth that the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, I should say, is in the world. It's a very severe lie. The agenda of the Antichrist. It's been brewing for a long, long time. So this error that we're learning about, it's not like a wrong answer that just deserves a minus on a test or a check mark. It's actually the plan of the Antichrist. And if we see error as not that destructive, if we see it as just minor, not a big deal, then we're not seeing reality. John's trying to wake up his readers. He's trying to wake us up to how important the truth is, how destructive the error is. So he says, test the lie because it's of the Antichrist. It's a severe lie. It's a destructive lie. You are of God, little children, this is verse four, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's a good verse to memorize. Point number six, test without fear of defeat. Test without fear of defeat. It promises us victory here, that in Christ, abiding in him as we test the spirits, that we will be victorious because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The one who lives in you is greater than the devil, greater than the Antichrist. Now, there are many within the church, and it's a growing number of people, who teach that Christians can be possessed by demons. Now, we know from the Word of God that people can be possessed by demons. But we see zero instances of believers having demons in them. We see the Lord and others casting demons out of people, but we don't see evidence that they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus doesn't cohabitate in temples. Now, how is that a pleasing doctrine? Somebody asked me before, they said, why is it a pleasing doctrine to believe that demons can live in Christians? Well, this is the way it works, the false teaching. If I'm sinning and the sin is having its way with me, it's mastering me the way it did with Cain, isn't it a lot more convenient to say that it's actually not me that's doing it? but it's the spirit inside me, then I don't need to take responsibility for my sin. I don't need to look at what the book of James says, that each man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Now, it sounds terrible to be possessed. I think it should sound terrible to anybody. But it, what it does is it makes an excuse for our sin. And we love excuses for sin in our flesh. And Jesus says, I, I'm in you. John writes, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You have the victory in Christ. And know that it belongs to you because the Lord dwells in you. That's the reason that you're victorious. They are of the world, it says in verse 5. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. You see it. The worldly, those who are living a worldly life, they're just marching to the beat of the twisted principles that are given to them. I don't even like calling them principles because people say, I'm a principled person and that leads me to believe that it, there's something good there. But as these so-called ideas are churned out, those who are worldly are just drinking them up and saying, yeah, I'll, I'll do whatever you say, right? That's what it says here. They're of the world. 
The world hears them. They speak to the world. The world, they suck up their agenda, and sometimes it's even in the name of God. We are of God. That's you. That's me. If you're in Christ, if I'm in Christ, he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Point number seven, test by the word of God. So test without fear of defeat and test by the word of God. The word of God, look at verse six, is how we check for truth or error. We're given some specifics about Jesus coming in the flesh. That's non-negotiable. But now we're given a broader way to test. It's what is the response to the hearing of the word of God? That is the way to test the spirits. John is referring here to the writing of the apostles because do you see where he says, he who knows God hears us. He's referring to the instruction that came from himself and the other apostles. The early church gave itself to what? What does it say in Acts 2.42? To the apostles' doctrine. So anybody who was not willing to come under that doctrine was in error. How do we apply this today? Well, we have the New Testament. Anyone who will not hear it and heed it is in error. So this isn't just John saying, my way is the right way. If you won't hear me, then you're, you're not truthful. This is John saying that those who are of the truth will listen to the word of God. They'll, they'll live it out. I'm of God. I'm willing to hear his truth. Where do we sit today? For much of the church, for many people who profess Christ, they just want to hear parts of the Bible. They don't want to hear certain parts, and they want to pick and choose. And this is a, a very, very dangerous trend because it allows us to say, I, there's some things I want to hear and there's some things I, I don't want to hear. That is an indicator of false teaching because we check for error by insisting on the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So many people now are saying, well, this is what's essential about the Christian faith. And I realize there's the Apostles' Creed, and there's some things that are fundamental, that are foundational to our faith. But how could you say, or how could I say, or how could anybody say that anything that's clear in the Bible isn't essential? Why did God put it in the Bible if it's not important? If we're not supposed to believe it and live it out? Who am I, or who is anybody to decide, well, these are these are the important things in the Bible. I'm just going to stick to the essential things. Well, how about anything in the Word of God that's clear, I'm going to declare it. And anything that's unclear, I'm going to get in there and wrestle with it and ask the Lord to give me wisdom. What happened to that? Or have we decided, no, we just have partial truths. And I'll stick to the truths that I like. Because it says here that he who knows God hears us. And he who is not of God does not hear us. They plug up their ears. This is part of us being vigilant. I do understand that you would want to be a part of a church where the leadership is vigilant. Leaders should be vigilant. Under shepherds should be paying attention to false teaching. But just because you think there are vigilant under shepherds, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be testing the spirits. This is something personal for each and every one of us. What happens sometimes? There's a lot of trust that's built towards 
teachers, towards pastors, towards leadership. And pretty soon we just say, oh, you know, they got it. And if there was error, they would be all over it. Well, that's passing by what the Lord wants to do in you by his spirit and saying, well, that's somebody else's job. Yeah, it is their job, but it's your job too. Even with the best drivers in the world, when I'm in the car, I'm kind of paying attention to what they're doing. I know they're driving. I know they're behind the wheel, but I'm like, oh, okay, what are they doing right here, right? I don't know if I'll ever get to the place like some of you are that you'll just fall asleep in the passenger seat. That's a lot of trust. I can't picture myself doing that. That's not what I'm like. I'm like, I'm in the car, right? Now, when you're teaching somebody how to drive, and I'm very familiar with this, right? There's a heightened sense of I'm not in the driver's seat. They're there, and you're really, really watching. Mercy pointed this out to me the other day. She goes, before I had my license, I I never really thought about whether we should pull out there or not, or whether that was, she's like, now she finds herself like, you know, breaking in the back seat, right? Yeah, there's people that are in leadership, but that doesn't dismiss any one of us individually from being noble-minded like the Bereans in Acts 17 and searching out the scriptures and not just assuming because you met somebody at church what they're telling you is good. Not just assuming that because there's a pastor or a teacher that you agree with on a lot of things that they're going to point out error to you because people get fooled. That's all we are as people. So test the spirits. I have tests because you're protective, tests because false prophets are prevalent, tests because false teaching is appealing, tests because, or tests regarding the incarnation of Jesus, tests because the lie is of the Antichrist, tests without fear of defeat, and then tests by the word of God. We praise you, Lord, for putting this book in our hands. We pray that it wouldn't just be in our hands, but that it would be in our hearts. We pray that we would receive it from you, Lord, not just from a person. That we would insist upon hearing your voice. That we would insist upon abiding. That we would see what we're up against. We can bemoan what's in this world, Lord, but if we don't prepare ourselves, that bemoaning does us no good. I pray for your church, Lord. I pray for us. I pray for your people all around this world that we would be a loving yet vigilant people, that we would be full of of goodness towards one another and and towards the lost also, Lord, but that we we would test what is said and not just take it, Lord. We'd realize the danger that is there and what pulls so many aside. I praise your name for being my redeemer, for being my savior, for being my Lord. I pray that you would open the eyes of the unbelieving. They would choose today to turn to your word, hear your gospel, and repent of their sins. And I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.